It was like a bomb exploding in the in the neighborhood where uh, you're in shock and and nobody can really say anything to you because all you can hear is a ringing in your ears and I felt like I was walking on a world made of jello you know nothing was stable nothing was secure I felt like I had been a good husband and a good father all my life and why is this happening and Well, that voice there was K. William Cotts. He is the author of a book called Milky Ways and Fireflies. And it chronicles the journey of losing, tragically, two of his children and what that did to his life and how it kind of whittled him down to nothing and then the rediscovery of wonder after such suffering. We are glad to glean wisdom from him and we're super grateful that he would be sitting at the open table with us today. My name is Danny. Welcome to the Open Table Collective Podcast. If you'd like to know more about The Open Table, you can go to theopentablecollective.com. You can also join us on Instagram where we carry on some of these conversations. You can also join us on Facebook. We just love to stay connected with you. If you'd like to have immediate feedback, you can text us at 248-422-0082. And we would love to have a conversation over text. Well, let's step into this conversation with K. William Cotts. I do believe that all of us are going to benefit from his wisdom and from his journey of deep suffering into wonder. As you know, you always have a seat at the table. So pull up a seat and let's learn and grow and discover together. Here we go. I'm excited to be sitting at the open table today with author and artist Kay William Cotts. He is the author of the book Milky Ways and Fireflies, and uh, we're just excited that you're here. Welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, we're glad you're here. You know, it's it, it's interesting. I have no idea how your book ended up in my Kindle. I really don't. I I don't know if I was scanning a bunch of books and your title caught my I and I just happened to download it in. All I know is is uh, a few months ago, I it caught my eye. I sat and I started reading this book, and I would think, man, this book is moving me. And then I got to chapter five, and we're we we actually have a dog that we're fostering, and he's a he's a dog he's a he's a dog that's been really abused, so he's very shy, and we've been fostering him back to health. And he's sitting across from me. I get to chapter five. I start reading it, and I just start weeping like three paragraphs in. And this dog sits up and looks at me like, "What's going on?" <laughs> he's really. <laughs> and at, in that, it was in that moment that I jumped on my email and I sent you an email out of nowhere and just said, "Hey, I'd love to talk to you." And I thought, "Well, who knows?" And next thing you know. You know what? Twelve hours later, you sent me a note, and we and we started to talk a little bit. And so I'm just gr- glad that you're here. And I would love for our listeners to know just a little bit about how this book, Milky Ways and Fireflies, came into existence. I mean, what in, what inspired it? Um, how did you land on that name? I mean, any I just we just love to hear the story. Yeah. Okay. So uh, April 2018, I had uh, 28 friends on Facebook. They were mostly my artist friends who I had known over the years. 
And at that point, I had lost a child. Um, he was a 25-year-old young man at the time. Uh, I had lost him to an avalanche. His name was, is Justin. And I was about to lose my second son, Nathaniel. Uh, Nathaniel was just completely different than Justin. Justin was happy, zest for life, uh, felt he could do things that he really couldn't do. <laughs> and Nathaniel uh, inherited a, um, a genetic predisposition towards depression from um, his mom's side of the family. There was actually generations of alcoholism and substance abuse and depression in that family. And um, I was completely ignorant at first uh, about what it was. Um, but um, Nathaniel had struggled with multiple suicide attempts and um, we kind of got him uh, stabilized finally and he was doing well. He got married, had a child and 38 days later, the child died from sudden infant death syndrome. Oh, wow. So I... Um, I decided to write to my 28 friends on Facebook this, I guess it was, it's more of a letter, but people have called it an essay. And I just wanted to t say what it was like to raise somebody who was vulnerable like that and prone towards uh, imagining the worst all the time and depression and, and this foreboding. And, um, and during the teenage years, anger, rebellion, mindless rebellion <laughs> and uh, just the struggle that uh, parents have to go through with that and how even friends would wag their heads at us and say, you must be doing something wrong. And boy, and I try to explain and say that the brain might be the most complicated organ in the body, yeah. but it's still just a mass of biological stuff, just like a liver or a lung or a pancreas. Yeah. And, um, and it's just as susceptible to, damage and disease and uh, inherited propensities and and uh, and that what's needed is grace you know it, it's not necessarily something that's going to fix the problem but um, we're still in the dark ages in terms of the way we view mental illness and and the stigma needs to be removed and people you know if it, I, I mentioned that if a child is born with a hole in its heart Nobody would ever think to blame the child or the parents, but if a child is born with a, a mental illness of some sort or, or a propensity towards it, that child and his or her parents will look forward to a lifetime of shame and blame. Boy, it's so true. Yeah, and uh, so I, I knew I was loved and respected by my 28 friends, and I knew <laughs> I'd be well-received, And uh, but that... One post went viral, and within a couple of weeks, it was over 100,000 people. Countries all over the world where you're not even allowed to talk about the stigma uh, of mental illness. Uh, I heard from a lot of Africans, a lot of uh, people in Islamic countries and India, where there's so much shame, and it's often identified with the demonic. And they were thanking me for my courage and saying, but I think it would have taken courage to say that in those countries, but not necessarily in my own. And uh, so I didn't feel courageous. I just, I just wanted to let people to know what, what it was like. And um, there was such an outpouring of um, gratitude from people uh, wow. that I had said that. 
and it's still every every year on this was 2018 and every year on on the occasion of my son's death it starts circulating again and people repost it and repost it and at that point i thought i've got all these followers now i i have a few other things i'd like to say <laughs> so 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 i started writing these little essays it was basically once a month and i got this huge following in People were begging me to to not stop, but to keep going. And um, and after a while, people had actually some people had written to me and said that I saved their lives and changed their lives. And wow! And all of a sudden, I began to see that the same thing that happened after my son's Justin Justin's death in the avalanche that God can take some of the most heartbreaking events of our lives and and do something redemptive with it. And and so I I kept writing, and then people said, "Will you put them into put these?" essays into a uh, into a book. So that's how it happened. Yeah, and it's so interesting reading the book because you had mentioned that to me that it's really a collection of essays, but there's a flow to it. It seems to flow chapter to chapter. Uh, maybe it was just because I was lost in all the little stories and different things that you kept taking us on, but it didn't feel like a disjointed journey. It felt like it was one kind of journey, that, which is pretty magical. I'm really glad you said that because I was worried that it would be disjointed. But I, I tried to organize them into, I think it was four sections. And, and yeah, I, I, it, it did end up flowing. What I've learned from this is that not everybody can express themselves. They long to, but they just their gifts are in another area. And the gratitude that I got from people was that I, I was giving voice to, to their pain and to their anxieties, and and there's something magical and redemptive about just saying it. Not ne- not necessarily that we have the answer to everybody's problems, but just verbalizing the pain. You know, the deepest yearning of the human heart. That there's something about that that's just um, healing. Yeah, I, I agree. And and we're in this. Uh, series that we're calling Suffering, Wondering, and the In-Between. And and my friend Michael Spain in the last podcast has a beautiful line where he said that uh, human suffering is the connective tissue of humanity. Like suffering is the connective tissue. And I think when you say that, when at least I felt that reading uh, your book, you you, you write in a very, um, uh, how, how would I say, very artistic, beautiful way. Uh, but but it's also very raw. It, it, it is as if you're opening up your chest and letting someone peer inside, and you really do sense that. And I think every single human being is either in a storm, coming out of a storm, or preparing to go into a storm. I mean, there's no way to, to, to miss the suffering of this life. So I think that's the part of it. And, and that's part of what I wanted to ask you. Like, you know, the, the tragedy of losing two children. I only know one other person in my life that that has happened to that I'm close to. And it's hard to even comprehend that level of pain and how you move through that level of suffering and loss. Um, How did you respond to that? I mean, if you're willing to talk about how you handled that or how you processed it or how you did in your family, I mean, that just seems like it seems overwhelming. Yeah. I I think um, people who uh, lose children are often um, yearning to talk about it. Uh, they they want to get it out. They want to talk about their son or their daughter or whatever. Um, as far as how I processed the pain, um, it was definitely different for Justin than with Nathaniel. 
with with Nathaniel, I mean, it, it's sad to say this, but um, we all anticipated it for years. Oh, wow. I mean, there have been so many attempts at suicide, and some of some of them were just horrific. And um, so, when it finally came, I felt like I had already spent decades grieving my son and and that the grieving was over because um i had processed it all already with justin though even though we told him over and over again that he's not bigger than mother nature and and even though he has his avalanche beacons and his avalanche poles and he's taken all of his classes on avalanches and he goes out with experienced skiers He's not bigger than Mother Nature, and and but he was a very responsible kid. Everybody loved him. Uh, he would always uh, welcome the outcast into his group, and was mm. loved for that too. His loss um, just was devastating to me. It was the first time I had lost a child, so there was that. But also, as I mentioned um, earlier, I married into a, a really unwell family let's put it that way and uh justin and i were the two people who identified the dysfunction and were punished for it and uh when he died i was i knew i was completely alone in the family and um that was pretty much the end of it and uh i tried for i think five more years after that but it was not just the loss of a son but it was the loss of a comrade in arms and that was painful and i talk in the book about how I was basically an emotional basket case. I I don't feel that I responded well to it. I felt more insecure than I had ever felt before in my life, even as a pimply faced teenager. (laughs) And, uh, and um, yeah, I I had mentioned that um, it was like a bomb exploding in the, in the neighborhood where uh, you're in shock and, and, Nobody can really say anything to you because all you can hear is a ringing in your ears. And I felt like I was walking on a world made of jello. You know, nothing was stable. Nothing was secure. I felt like I had been a good husband and a good father all my life. And why is this happening? And everything's being destroyed. 25 years of supporting a family and, and all. And, and um, what's going on here anyway? You know, that sort of thing. And, and I think for a whole year, that's where I was at. I never blamed God. I, I tend to blame myself or, or, um, people, you know, when we do dumb things, but I, I never experienced being angry at God. I mean, no time in any of these. No, really. No, that's, that's fascinating. I, I don't know. I don't know why, but, uh, I felt like even in the darkness, something good was going to come from it. I don't know. That's, that's basically the definition of faith. Um, <laughs> and, and, um, even when you're like groping in the dark and you don't know what's going on, I, I still believe that something transformative and redemptive would happen. So, you know, when you lose somebody, something might happen in your life and you'll think, oh, I, I'll need to tell Justin about that. And then you realize, no, I can't tell Justin about that. He, I, I, I'm not going to be able to talk to him for the rest of my life. And and it's it's like you're hit with the shock of it all all over again. But by the end of that first year, his death was no longer a surprise. Uh, I mean, it, it was no longer surprising me. I was dealing with it. In that one chapter called The Lenses of Our Lives, before I lost any of any children, my wife had had an affair and, and that was the end of our marriage. And um, so there was those three shocks, the, the, the divorce, 
the death of Justin and the death of Nathaniel. And, and uh, I got to the point where I realized I was so focused on my pain and my losses. It was like looking through, looking at everything through the lens of a, uh, a zoom lens, uh, looking at my pain through a zoom lens. Mm. Uh, it was time to take off the zoom lens and to put on a wide angle lens and, and see peripheral things. And, you know, maybe redemption was hiding in the peripheries. And, uh, and that's the, at that point, that's when I, I had one of the most beautiful experiences of my life. And it, it was um, probably the first time that I, I really saw God taking a heartbreaking experience and turning it completely around and making it something. Boy, I'll tell you something like that. That little image, I don't want to blow by too quickly because I want to hear what you have to say next. But that image of zooming in and then and then wanting to have the wide angle lens and finding redemption and God in the peripheral. Whoa. Like that I don't want to just I don't want our listeners to blow by that because it's so true. It, it sometimes we get such tunnel vision that we cannot see what's around us. And that image you just gave me is like, whoa. I, I mean I just coming to this moment of just maybe twenty minutes ago, I'm driving, coming here, and I'm having a conversation with somebody that's dear to me that's going through this moment where they're zoomed in. And I wish I had that image. I'm going to share that with him when we're done here. I'm going to call him and it's like, you got to hear this, you know, because it's true, isn't it? When you, we can zoom out at some point, we can find those treasures in the periphery. And what did you find? I mean, what was it, what was your breakthrough? Okay. So before I tell you, I just want to say that I wasn't, I wasn't uh, ready emotionally or spiritually to put on the wide angle lens right away. I, I think a person needs to focus on their loss and process the grief. It's like when I when I finished law school and I took the bar exam, uh, I called up, I had a bunch of questions first, and I called up the board of bar, bar examiners and, uh, and was asking some questions. I probably obviously sounded very anxious. And, and the woman said, Will, you just need to take the test. You just need to take the test. And and I think when we lose somebody, we just need to take the test. We have to go through those stages of grieving. And, and, and it's okay. It's okay to be weak and vulnerable and cry. And we need to give ourselves that grace. And, and it's okay to have a Zoom lens on and to focus on that. But at some point, it gets old. It just gets old. And, and, and you, want, you, you want your life to be more about more than just grieving you, you want to produce something and especially I, I, just about every person i've ever talked to that has lost a child has said this they they want to believe that something good can come from this that it's not just a, a total waste yeah. and so uh for me um i had this feeling after i put the wide angle lens on that I needed to find people who are suffering, you know, in worse places than I've ever been. And so one day I sat in front of uh, the computer and started Googling things. And I think maybe after a couple hours, I, I found this video of a little girl, looked like she was maybe four or five years old, living in a garbage dump in Latin America and reading about the experience of living in a garbage dump. And, and as I said in the book, I'm not somebody who feels comfortable saying God told me this or God told me that because there have been so many kooky people in this world saying yes. kooky things in the name of God. But I just really felt a strong sense that God was saying, go, just go. Yeah. So, yeah, I went. I bought a ticket and um, went to a place that travel agents never tell you about. And <laughs> it, it was the most 
miserable place and the most beautiful place. I saw girls as young as nine years old prostituting themselves to uh, garbage truck drivers because they knew that certain garbage trucks came from the restaurant district of Managua. And um, so they sold their bodies for trash. And um, I, I just, and yet there's these little girls, most of them were fatherless, would come up to me and, and, um, we didn't speak the same language I, I was learning, but um, all of a sudden just felt desired, you know, that's especially having to deal with a dysfunctional family where if you just ask for decency, you're punished. And then all of a sudden I'm in a, an entirely different place. I can't speak the language, but people are seeing me as, as a valuable person and, and um, in, a val- so, in a valuable role as a father too. Yeah, Gosh. right, right. Right, so I began uh, praying that that I could adopt one of those little kids, and it, I mentioned in the book that it's an impossible prayer because um, Nicaragua didn't allow um, Americans to adopt kids, and I was a single male. Uh, it wasn't going to happen, but I believed that God was the God of the impossible, so <laughs> I kept praying it. And uh, on my third trip down there, a woman who was helping me translate um, started telling me about her kid sister named Jenny. And uh, the more she talked about her, the more I identified with her because she was artistic. And um, I ended up meeting Jenny. She was 25 years old at the time, same age as Justin. And um, she wanted to be a photographer. And all she had was a cheap cell phone. And so I took them out to dinner at some point. And Jenny said that she wanted to tell me the truth, but her, her mother and her sister didn't want her to say it. But she said, I've been struggling with depression and Mm. I have anxieties and I have panic attacks. And um, I mean, she had lost her father when she was two years old and the family lost everything. And she grew up in a third world hell. Sure, yeah. And so Jenny could barely get out of bed most days. She was so depressed. But it came a time when I had to fly home and Jenny got up at like five in the morning to come with me to the airport. I could tell she wanted to ask me something but she didn't. So when I got home, there was an email waiting for me. And she basically asked me if I would be your dad. Oh, and man. so I, I I said, sure, I'd love that. So um, I sent her a camera and a computer and uh, we got her enrolled in a, a photography academy down there. And uh, she, she was doing really well, uh, but she ended up coming up here and she's actually living here with me now. Oh, wow. and, uh, but uh, it's been 10 years. That was 10 years ago. Wow. And she's just the joy of my life she i mean she's very artistic so she'll come into my workshop and she'll say teach me dad i want to learn and, <laughs> and and i remember the first time i ever had to correct her she was down in nicaragua and i was up here and she was texting me while she was driving and i said jenny pull over to the side of the road and so she pulled over and she said yes dad she says dad in just about every sentence um, <laughs> that she speaks and, and I said prom- I said I, at that point I, I had only lost one child but I said promise me that you won't ever text and drive again I said I've already lost one child I don't want to lose another mm. one so there was this long pause and I, and I and I was used to kids not liking me correcting them <laughs> so I was kind of expecting that from her but well she came back and she said Dad, I'm so happy. This is um, this is the first time in my life where I had a father correct me. I promise I won't ever text and drive again. I made you a promise, Dad. I'm going to keep it. <laughs> and that's, that's, I mean, for a dad, it's just one of the most joyful experiences in the world to to 
experience that kind of gratitude from oh, yeah. a, a child who never had a dad. That's so beautiful. That, that, that I mean, yeah. but that really does put in perspective that idea of you losing a child and then gaining this other beautiful thing in the periphery. You know, as you as you kind of come out. You know, you you wrote uh, in your book that there is no wilder paradox and no safer place to be than in the presence of an incomprehensible love, emptied of everything and laying helpless in a cradle of mystery and straw. Man, what a great line. Um, can, you, can, you, can you talk a little bit about, about faith, about your faith, about how it may or may have been tested, you know, during? You've already mentioned that you never really doubted God, but... Um, it, was there any testing, you know, was there, you know, was there, was, did God look differently through the lens of your loss and even through the gain of a daughter in the process? I mean, can you talk a little bit more about your faith? Yeah. Um, that one quote that you just gave was, was from a post that I put on Facebook at Christmas time. So it dealt with wonder and, and, uh, not being able to fully understand everything, but actually enjoying the mystery, enjoying mm. the fact that I, it's okay to not have all the answers. And I think, uh, I think I've always been that way. And, and in one of the chapters of the books, I, I mentioned that I read this study once that showed how, um, some brains are just wired to be conservative, uh, to think conservative, and other brains are just wired to be uh, think liberal, and that society needs both kinds. And and this the person who did the study suggested what the strengths of the conservative was that they like to have everything ordered and uh, to make sense of everything and everything's neat and tidy, have your systematic theology all your ducks lined in a row, and the d danger of that is that we want so badly to bring order to chaos that we oversimplify things and end up neglecting the weightier matters of the law, justice <laughs> and mercy. And, uh, yeah. and I, I mean, the Pharisees were essentially fundamentalists who had a very high view of Scripture, and yet they missed something. Yeah. And liberals, on the other hand, will uh, have a hard time, and th this is me, um, but I, I read a quote, that said um, empathy without boundaries is self-destruction and and also showing mercy without accountability will often produce mediocrity and uh yeah we both need to learn about the liberal and the conservative minds need to learn something but the liberal mind doesn't mind mystery and wonder as much it's okay to not have all the answers and and uh, and to believe that God is bigger than me, and 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 uh, He's got things under control, even when it seems bleak. So uh, I've always been drawn to that view, rather than somebody who wanted all my ducks in a row. And and I, I grew up in a in a denomination that claimed to be um, closest to the truth to the point of narcissism. And and whenever I've seen that in other denominations, I I just shrink back from it. I, I, w I would rather throw my hands up in resignation and say, I don't have all the answers, but it's a mystery and it's glorious and someday we'll figure it out. And essentially that's what Paul said. You know, yeah. I said, our, our preaching is imperfect right. and we're looking through a glass darkly and, um, but someday we'll be able to make sense of this. But, uh, yeah, I really like what you're saying there because it's, it is, um, it gives us a great perspective even heading into this year, which I think this year is going to be a very, very challenging year uh, as an election year and all the things that are happening in the world. And 
Uh, and it's challenging to me too because I've been I came from such a conservative background uh, the last you know couple decades at least living within that but I tend to see the world a little bit more like you do in terms of the mystery and the wonder and not having to have all the answers and sometimes we can get uh, I can personally get judgmental of the other side thinking you think you know everything there's more one you know and there's a tension there and I've been trying to figure out a way even within what we do is to make sure that we don't dismiss other voices make sure I don't get arrogant in the way that I approach some of these things uh, because I think it is a combination of both I think Jesus is clear about a number of things but I also think that there's a profound mystery and that and it, it, we, like I love how you're saying that where where people are just wired differently to handle different things and so in terms of your loss and in terms of everything that you have gone through and are going through, it's 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 interesting that because you embrace this mystery and this wonder, it almost helped you in some ways to to move through. You know, we never get over or past, but to, to, to sort of move through. Is that is that a good way of saying it? Or Yeah, and also ever since I was a little kid, I, I felt that, especially growing up in a denominational setting, um, that we were all subjective. We all come from someplace. And um, that subjectivity distorts our our understanding. And how do you get around your subjectivity? Well, in some ways we can't because our brain just isn't omniscient. Um, and uh, But uh, in other ways, a broken and contrite heart is how to get around it. And... Mm. and um, and allowing God to bring us to a place that's maybe sometimes painful where we have to say, I don't have all the answers. I thought I did, but I don't, and it's okay. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I would rather be known for humility than known for having uh, a perfect theology. And I think God wants that from us. He doesn't demand perfection from us. He He wants, he gives grace to the humble. Man. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that just alone is is convicting. Thank you. Thank, yeah, thank you for those thoughts. Those are unique, especially uh, coming from someone that has has experienced such loss. Uh, it's a it's a beautiful perspective. That was one of the things about the book that also moved me was the idea of wonder. Uh, that you you called this book Milky Ways and Fireflies, and I don't know if we ever got to the place where you said why. You know, can you? Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I, at least from my recollection, I don't have the book in front of me, but from what I can remember, there is a little bit of that that awakened wonder in you. Is that true? Or yeah, th- I think um, I think it's the second chapter of the book is called Milky Ways and Fireflies, and it talked about uh, how when I get up in the middle of the night sometimes, um, and I look out one of my second floor windows. I can see the Milky Way, especially in the wintertime. Uh, and, and other times I'll, I'll see, in the summertime, I'll see a field full of fireflies and, and, a, and a mountain beyond that. And it is, it's all so magical. And I'll sometimes just sit on the floor and just look out the window in the middle of the night. And it's, it's I mean, that childlike awe of everything. And I, I talked about how when I was a kid, my father caught me on my bed um, in the middle of the of a, a summer day, just staring at the ceiling, thinking about how anything could be, you know, how, how, how could anything come in, into existence? It either had to be there eternally pre-existent or it had to come out of nothing. And, and, it's, and I couldn't make any sense of it. And my father said, what are you doing? You're, all the kids are playing ball outside. Uh, why don't you get off your bed? And I said, I'm thinking. And he, he just shook his head and closed the door. <laughs> 
But yeah, I think having that uh, sense of wonder um, humbles us. It, it doesn't. It doesn't humiliate us. Uh, I mean, the universe doesn't humiliate us, but but it does humble us. I mean, three trillion galaxies. We're being told now is what makes up wow. the the, the uh, universe. And there might be other universes too. So, I mean, it's just God is so much bigger than any of us could ever put into any kind of orthodoxy and uh, or systematic theology. And we just need to get over ourselves and just delight, delight in the fact that the creator of the universe knows more than, than I do and, and uh, has things under control. And um, we're going to see our loved ones again. Uh, yeah. I sure hope that the creator of the universe knows more than me. <laughs> oh, good Lord, we'd be in trouble. Um, you know, in, uh, in in chapter six, you talk about three things. And maybe this is a way to open up wonder. You've already talked about number three a bit with your daughter. Uh, but I do want to come back to it. And you wrote this. When I look back at how I handled my pain, I realized that I felt more insecure than when I was a teenager. You you, you almost said this before, that you're walking on a world made of jello because nothing was steady. And it was hard to find your balance and everything was wobbly. But eventually I found my bearings and began to sense that I was being led to a place of beauty that is only available to broken souls. Man, what a great line that broken souls have this access to beauty. And then you went on to talk about three things. Uh, you need to know, number one, who you are. You then focus on your gifts. Uh, pain isn't meaningless, number two. And number three, what you talk so beautifully about already is give yourself to another suffering person and love them unconditionally. Can you play out a little bit more for us um, in terms of how these manifested themselves in your life? Meaning, you know, maybe through the suffering you discovered more of who you are or discovered more of your gifts or maybe you discovered this that, that the meaning of pain but i would i would love for you to play a little, little bit out so with regard to the first thing needing to know who you are um i was in a hornet's nest of narcissists i i mean there's just no polite way to describe it and uh anybody who's ever experienced a narcissistic personality knows that they are masterful at avoiding denying and deflecting attention away from the very thing that needs to be talked about or um, they blame their victims and and they will spite you for identifying the problem and so when you're in that hornet's nest you're constantly doubting yourself you're saying if i'm surrounded by all these people and they're thinking their own way maybe maybe i'm the one who's wrong maybe i'm nuts mm. i need to know who i am and uh, i need to be grounded instead of being on a, a a world made of jello and and so i began to just ask myself what does decency look like and um and if you, I, I mean, I was raised in a healthy, happy family. My mom and dad loved each other for 43 years um, before my dad died. And I knew what decency looked like. I knew what it meant to have a father who was faithful to my mother and my mother who was faithful to my father and to see the love return. And and when I was seeing the exact opposite and, and, and being uh, told that I was the one who was wrong, you know, it, it just plants all kinds of doubt in your mind. And at some point, I just had to say, wait a minute, let's just list what mm. decency really looks like. I, I had to say to myself, you're in this position right now because you want decency. 
and I'm not going to be defeated by dysfunctionals. I am not hmm. going to be defeated. And I, I had enough uh, going on in my life with the death of my children. I, so I just reaffirmed to myself what my talents were, what I was good at. I wasn't going to let anybody else define me. And, and at one point, I reached a place where I finally said, screw everybody. <laughs> and it sounds unspiritual. But what I meant was, it was probably the most spiritual thing I could have said at the time. But what I meant was that there's only one person in the universe who who needs to define me, and it and it's not a, a hornet's nest of dysfunctionals. So um, that's powerful. That that's the first, and then the second thing was pain isn't meaningless, and that's that's the one that actually means the most to me because um, without suffering, we can't learn compassion. It's uh, maturity comes through pain. We. It's like you have to take the test, Will. <laughs> you have to take the test. And um, I, I told, I mentioned in the book about a, a teenage girl, I think she was in Florida, who was born with this bizarre medical condition where she couldn't feel physical pain. Somebody could burn her with a cigarette lighter and she wouldn't feel it. And her mother had said that she didn't seem to uh, be able to feel empathy towards people who are in physical pain because she had no reference point to go to. We, we become spiritually mature by suffering and it's, it's not pleasant, but um, that when the spiritual maturity comes, it brings joy. It brings depth. It brings the kind of um, experiences that we could never have if we had never gone through the difficult circumstances. So that's why pain isn't meaningless. We, we can, we can say, I don't like it right? Uh, because it hurts, but um, we can also rejoice that it, it, it deepens us, makes us more compassionate. And I think that also then leads us to the third point, give yourself to another person. There's that, that whole chapter of Isaiah 58. That's the chapter where God defines what a, a, a real fast is. Yeah. Is this not the fast that I choose to undo the thongs of the yoke of slavery, let the, the oppressed go free and uh, shatter every form of abuse. Um, that's my paraphrase. But um, And then it ends with God saying, um, if you spend yourself on behalf of the hungry, then your darkness will become like the noonday sun yeah. and you will call to me and I will say, here I am. The, the chapter begins with the people of God saying, where are you, God? We're doing all this religious stuff and you're not noticing it. And God's saying, yeah, but on the day of your fast, you exploited your workers and you struck each other with wicked fists. You cannot do these things today and expect your voices to be heard on high. And so God's contrasting dead orthodoxy with a living faith, which is going to give birth to compassion. The suffering is going to give birth to compassion and then you're going to start caring for the vulnerable. And that's when the joy comes. Um, is that you? You've learned once you learn compassion, then your life becomes meaningful. Wow! Wow! Boy, we could we could just end there. <laughs> that's a, that, you're preaching at this point. That's is gorgeous. Um, and we, and we see that playing out in other scriptures. You know, like, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, to face trials of many kinds. Because when you do what, it leads to perseverance, and pre perseverance leads to maturity. And you know, and you're growing. And uh, Paul talks about that in Romans, I believe, as well. And they're just it's such a a wonderful sense of you know wonderful it's a weird word to say but but it, there is wonder inside the the suffering that that kind of theme that goes through that there's something being birthed like you said in the darkness i knew there was something being being made in birth it's 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 powerful and i'm curious this is kind of a side note but it's something that hit me when you said it 
when you said uh, you wanted to go back and you wanted to to reaffirm what your gifts are. Can, what are your gifts? Would you? What, what, how would you define your gifts, or or what 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 God has gifted you with? Um, well, maybe it was because most of the bullies at my elementary school were at my bus stop, but I, I learned at a very early age that vulnerability is um, that we need to care for the vulnerable and that indifference. I, I think it was Ellie, Ellie Wiesel said, um, the opposite of love isn't hatred, it's indifference. And that uh, we need to care for the, the vulnerable. I've always been that way. I've always been a sensitive person. I've always been somebody who cries easy. My, my dad used to tell me that, not, not to criticize me, but he actually thought it was sweet. But yeah, so my gift, I guess, is empathy. Uh, but did I say it earlier that empathy without boundaries is self-destruction? That, <laughs> yes. I mean, that, 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 that's the lesson I'm still learning, uh, but uh, <laughs> how to set boundaries. But uh, And I have artistic gifts. I, I mean, I've made my living as an artist for almost 40 years and, and enjoyed doing that. So I, uh, after seminary and law school, I, I set up a a legal practice where I um, defended abuse victims for 10 years until I got burnt out. It was my artwork that pretty much supported that and made it possible. So um, I've always been told since I was a kid that I was a good writer. So I was told that I was a good writer long before I had something to say um, that was meaningful. And, I, and again, it was the suffering and, and the pain that gave me something to say. So uh, for the longest time, you know, when you're young, you're cocky and you think you know it all. And I'm glad I didn't write it anything back then because I would have made a complete fool of myself. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I, I think um, we can be born with certain gifts, but don't have the maturity yet to use them uh, properly. And um, I guess that came after after my losses. So, Can you just tell us a little bit about your life as an artist? And, and you know, we had talked before we even started recording and you're like, well, you know, I don't know if there's a connection. And then you started talking about it and I was like, boy, there's uh, there's some beautiful things in there. I'd love to just hear a little bit about your life as an artist and how it shaped you and maybe even how that discipline or that view maybe has helped you process your grief or loss or suffering. Yeah, I suppose art is therapy. I mean, doing anything creative is therapy. Uh, but um, I I always loved working with my hands, even though I also wanted to be a professional student once. I mean, I enjoyed going to school, but in the end, uh, designing things. And I've, I've always loved early American architecture and folk art. And I built four homes, all historical homes and uh, reproductions and made carved stern boards and um, ship's figureheads and decoys and weather vanes and copy a lot of the, the best stuff at American Folk Art Museum in New York or whatever. And uh, so I made my living doing that. And it was sort of like a tent making living because it not only supported the family, but it enabled me to, to run a law practice for a little while. Yeah. So it's not that I produced religious art or anything like that, but I enjoyed the creativity and I, and also that I could use it for some greater good, you know, yeah. other than, other than just buying myself stuff. Yeah. It's so. beautiful. Yeah. Thank you for sharing a little bit of that. I love this conversation. I think I sit here and talk f for another hour with you. I'm curious if there is any kind of thoughts that you might have that we haven't touched on or any last thoughts you might have for our community as we're navigating this. I mean, it seems strange to navigate 
the beginning of a brand new year talking about suffering, but I think that the idea that it is a connective tissue is is important, and and it's something where if we can start to learn how to process those things deeper and better, uh, it, it allows us to then enter into chaotic things and and hard things even better with with our faith and with Christ. So, I'm curious if there's any anything that you have on your heart, or even things that you're noticing now, or something different that's happening around you. I'd just love to hear some last thoughts. Yeah, I if I would add anything, it would just be the idea of uh, servant leadership. I, I love that phrase. I told the story in the book about one of the trips to Latin America. I, I met a girl, she she may be 12 or 13 years old, and she was a really good artist. I mean, she had done these beautiful watercolors, and it, it was just, her talent amazed me. And But at the same time, it made me sad. And I, I asked God, why do you give people talents if they're stuck in desperate situations where they really can't, you know, all all they can really think about is how to survive and they don't get to really use their talents. And and then I um, I felt God saying something to me and I'll, I'll just read a, a quick paragraph uh, from the book. And then I realized something about the nature of servant leadership. I think God longs to whisper something redemptive into each of our souls. I think he wants to say, my job is to give people talents. Your job is to empower them to use those talents. If I did everything, you would have no mission. If you have no mission, your life loses meaning. If your life loses meaning, you will have no joy. I promised you joy. I promise you an abundant life. This is how you get it. Feed my lambs, love the brokenhearted, empower the powerless. Don't do it for your own glory. Do it for something bigger than you. And when God weeps such words onto the pages of our souls, we are brought to our knees by the beauty of it all. It transports us to a place of healing where we no longer have any interest in our own vain glory because now finally our lives are defined by depth, maturity, significance, and joy. So that, that pretty much sums it up for me. Yeah, sums up for me too. William Cotts, thank you. Man, I, I cannot tell you um, what that book has opened up in my soul. You know, I have to be careful because I'll I'll start I'll start being the one to cry. But it, yeah. it just really was at a perfect time where I just needed the faucets to get turned on, and I needed someone to put into words um, some of the things that that our family has experienced, and not on the level that you have, uh, but certainly on the intimacy that you have in terms of some of your journey with mental health and, and suffering and struggles. So I just want to say thank you. Thank you for uh, that. And um, I, I'm just going to plug here. People are listening all around the world, but uh, in the beginning of March, you're going to come and visit here in the Detroit area. Hopefully that's where we're planning. And I'm grateful that we're going to be live and be able to see each other and share. And so if you're in the Detroit area that first Saturday of March and want to want to meet Wilcott, so we'd love to have you there um, and look us up on the website. And so thank you again for being at the table. You're you're a joy Thanks, you're, Danny. and you are filled with wisdom. So thank you. I, I appreciate it. Thank you for the encouragement. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I'm going to see you soon. Okay. Yeah. Bye-bye, Danny. All right. Bye. Hey, we are so grateful that you would join us here at the Open Table Collective Podcast. As always, you always have a seat here and we can wrestle. You can also leave us feedback uh, on our Spotify page. You can connect with us through Instagram or Facebook. You can sign up for our texting 248-422-0082. Or you can go to our website, theopentablecollective.com, and you can connect with us there. 
I hope this conversation today was fruitful. I hope it uh, inspired some thoughts in you and inspired some ways that we can all kind of navigate this collective tissue of suffering that is part of our humanity and that we can rediscover some wonder together. So we pray that uh, until next time that you would discover a little bit more of who you are, who God is, how to love your neighbor, and how to live beautifully in this world. We will see you very soon.